Hey, hi, hello. Welcome to episode 22 of Trail Society. I'm Corinne Malcolm. I'm Keely Henninger. And I'm Hillary Allen. And as always, today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Free Trail. If you haven't checked out the Free Trail app yet, do yourself a favor, go check it out, give it a gander. They're, they're up to some pretty cool things. Um, so go go give them, go, go poke around. Um, if it's something for you, easy to become a monthly subscriber. Um, and I guess since we last recorded, I feel like we're all over the place before we hit record. Like I'm in Steven's childhood bedroom, Hillary's in her new home. Keely just got back from traveling. Well, Keely was training rather. Um, and so we're just going to do a little life catch up on everyone too. Keely, you were just in Tahoe. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing up there and, uh, how it all went? Sure. Yeah. I mean, speaking of Dylan and free trail, Last year, they filmed a lot of my Western States training, actually. So you could check that out on the free trail app also. Um, and we might be filming something more cool this year, too. But that's what I was doing in Tahoe. So I was there training for Western States um, because I have a wedding to go to this weekend and I couldn't make the Memorial Day camp. And I also thought it'd be fun to do a full two weeks of camp um, with some friends that went with me. Um, and so it was really cool to be able to start running a lot of the course, uh, last year, I definitely went into the race a little naively thinking I knew more of the course than I did. Cause I ran way too cool. Uh, turns out that's not much of a course. <laughs> <laughs> and so people would be like at the aid station, what's the, what's next? You got this. And I'd be like, I don't know. <laughs> um, so it was really fun to run on the course. Uh, a lot of, a lot of course familiarization, um, especially the last 20 miles that I'll be running in the dark. So that was fun. And then I actually got to run a 45 mile run with Brittany Peterson. That was absolutely lovely. We hadn't talked for like a year in person. So we got to talk that whole 45 miles. And the biggest thing that I wanted to get while down there was like some heat acclimatization as well as just fueling practice because in Portland, I don't get to practice eating in the heat at all. And like when I was at Western States last year, my stomach was not having it after mile 40. And obviously in a 100 mile race, if you don't eat after mile 40, you're kind of screwed. And so I kind of just wanted to start practicing early and really just practice with a ton of different foods while I was down there. Um, had a couple Instagram stories that a lot of people had questions about because I was posting just random foods that I was trying and people were really interested. And we're saying that a lot of people don't post stuff like that to show that we actually practice and, you know, things that maybe don't work during races or do work during races. How do we know? And I think the biggest thing is we have to practice. And sometimes it feels really silly, right? Like to stop your run at mile 20 and try to eat some oatmeal or whatever it is. But if you know, it sits at least sometimes it's, it's better to try on race day than something you've never tried before. So yeah, long story short, it was a training trip that ended up being awesome and got a lot of the, the downhills in my legs. So it was a success. Yeah. We were ships passing in the night. I was, uh, I crashed at Keely's house in Portland on my way North to Seattle, where Steven and I moved all of our stuff into storage because we are officially, well, as of Friday, we'll officially be Seattle residents, which is very, very exciting. Um, so made the move, made the move north while Keely was hanging out down by me, running on all the fun <laughs> Tahoe trails. And then I think Hilly, since the last time we spoke, well, obviously you moved into a new place, you're still in Boulder, but you were also on like a big, long, weird adventure recently, like a 400 mile bike ride of some sort with some running thrown in the mix. Yeah. Um, you sent us a really cool photo of your bike saddle. I'm just wondering if you can uh, <laughs> tell us a little bit about, uh, about that trip and kind of what you've been up to. 
Yeah. So first of all, for, for me, um, I obviously do a lot of gravel bike races. I'm preparing for Unbound 200, which is in a week and a half. Um, and so for me, it's really, it's important to me, for me to switch it up. And I, I think of training as, you know, just training it doesn't have to necessarily be running. Um, but I also really like to ride my bike and I kind of need to like dial in some things for that ride. So, um, yeah, I went on this epic little tour in New Mexico. The sad news though, is that I literally like, there was a whole bunch of fires. Some of the biggest fires in New Mexico history that were happening outside of Santa Fe. And we had planned to do this route, um, in the South in the Gila national forest. And there were no wildfires there, but since we left only a week later, some of the trails that I was running on the CDT, um, they are totally burned and gone. And like all the national forests in, in New Mexico are being closed now. So it's like, it was great that I got to go down there, but it was also just really sad that, um, it's a totally different landscape now. So like, yeah, but, um, I mean, that is, Hillary, huh? so it ended up burning South. Mm-hmm. Well, so it, that, those two were separate fires, actually. Sorry, it, it did not burn all the way. Like that, those are the one outside of Santa Fe. Um, that's a separate one, and then there was another fire that started down south in the Gila National Forest. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, but I mean, that it was it was really cool, and of course, I like to. It was it was cool to, to like pick on a map and be like, oh here's a trail. Let's see if I can run this. And then when you get there, it's like not a trail at all. Cause there was like a fire 10, 15 years ago. And then the trail is in bad shape. So it was a very adventurous, uh, loop, um, filtering water that, um, you know, cows were sharing with me. Um, so that was awesome. But, um, and then to top it all off, um, and I did a post about this is perfect from, you know, our last episode and what we talked about, um, but thanks to Aura, um, my I was able to plan and like look ahead because if you're going to go camping uh, for seven days without you know like reliable water or cell service or any of these things, you're bringing all your stuff with you. You kind of need to know if you're going to have your period or not. And so um, Aura actually for the first time predicted mine to the day, and so I had everything that I that I, I brought everything with me. Um, but it was a bit messy. So, <laughs> um, hence the Instagram post that I had to, you know, kick kickstart and the conversation that we already started about talking about, um, having our period and running and being active. So yeah, it's, uh, it's the first time that's ever happened to me. It was, uh, a bit awkward and, uh, uh, Kurt, who I was with, was a very good sport. He, in fact, shipped my bike home after New Mexico and he cleaned it off for me. So that was really nice. <laughs> Bravo, Kurt. You're a keeper. Um, yeah, he uh, he said to me, he's like, I'm not scared of your period, Hillary. I'm like, good job. Thank you. Because <laughs> I was for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. We love to hear that. That's really great. Go, go dudes. <laughs> And I mean, to top all of that off, that was kind of an extended first date. So it was just like, you're getting the whole, the whole shebang there. You've never met him before? No, no, no. I've known him for, I've known him for, (laughs) I've known him for uh, like over a year, but that was like kind of like a, a a first date that we had. I was going to say, that's like kind of a danger (laughs) television show territory. Like, Ooh, let's meet for our first time in the wilderness for a week. (laughs) <laughs> no, I have known him for a while, so okay, nice. never to be seen again. Yep. Dun, right. Dun, dun. right. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's a great first date. Just a casual, casual week long. 
first date. You know, we, we joke that like seeing your part, your significant other, like, or, or someone you're interested in, like run an ultra is a good way to get to know who they actually are. I imagine seven days of bike packing is also a really good way to get to know who someone actually is. Yeah. I think Kurt learned that I'm very impatient because he was just like touring pace and he's like wanting to like take pictures. And I'm just like, let's do this at the camp, man. Like, let's keep going. (laughs) Anyways, no, it was, it was really, it was really fun. It was just a pretty funny. (laughs) That's awesome. And then you're heading to Kansas for unbound Mm -hmm. soon, right? It's not, is it, it's not this weekend. It's the following weekend, the following weekend. Yeah. So it's, it's June 4th is the race. So, um, if anyone's going to be out there, all the runners get into cycling. Let's go 200 (laughs) miles, right? Super casual. Yeah. Yeah. You know, with a headwind both ways, it's usually how it goes, or at least a headwind for a hundred miles. That's how it went last year. It was insane. <laughs> I'm so excited. They do a pretty good job doing coverage for that race. So I'm yeah. excited to get to get to watch it a little bit this year um, cool. as we prep for other live coverage. Yay. Okay. So <laughs> before we get into races, because races are a big deal, right? Like we all celebrate races, but we're celebrating a lot of life in our podcast, I think too, right now. And that's continuing on in some of our next topics. Um, and so I just wanted to give a big shout out to three of our very pregnant friends who are near and dear to us, um, who are all having welcoming babies into this world come August and September. Um, and I, like, I just found out that Rachel Drake and Tyler Green are pregnant. So congratulations, Rachel. I am like giddy with joy about baby, baby Drake Green coming into this world. <laughs> Um, and then obviously, uh, Dylan and Harmony are welcoming their first child in August, I think like Mm -hmm. around the corner. Um, and then the Roaches, Megan and David Roach, um, are welcoming their first kid in September as well. So like, yay, trail runners and babies. Some of you might not want babies ever. That is okay. Some of you might've experienced loss around babies. Like we, we want to like hear all those, those thoughts and feelings, but we're just really, I don't know. I'm excited for everyone celebrating all these big life moments right alongside racing. Okay. And that's all I got. Um, more important. Yeah. Are you more important? And like, because of this, like based on timing, like Rachel totally ran chucking up pregnant, which I just like, I love, I love it. Um, okay. Enough about that. We'll dive into some racing and then we'll talk more about getting pregnant or not getting pregnant down the road. Um, but we're recording this ahead of a Memorial day weekend. Um, this will come out after Memorial day weekend. And there's some big races happening this weekend that we're obviously, we might not have in the show notes. Um, and there's going to be Zagama, um, in Spain and the maxi race in France are both happening over Memorial day. And they're both going to have really stout fields. Zagama is the opening golden trail series race. Like that race is going to be nutso. So maybe we'll sneak back in and, and give some shout outs, but otherwise like please give them, give them all your, all your, uh, hoorahs because that's going to be super, super cool. Um, we're going to dive into some other race results that have happened over the past week or two. And one that caught my eye right away was not a race. It was actually an FKT, um, by Kimber Maddox, who is a bend gal. She's been in the trail, like the mountain running team space for a while. She's done a bunch of obstacle course racing, Um, but she broke Alicia Vargo's rim to rim. So one crossing of the grand Canyon, um, and Alicia's a badass. So going down and taking five minutes off that time, I thought was pretty stout. Um, Kimber ran it, I think this past week in three fourteen. 
um, taking five minutes again off of Alicia Vargo's 2017 time, um, which honestly, I didn't know if it was going to be super breakable. So huge shout out to Kimber on that one. I thought that was very, very cool. Yeah. And she had just come off a, well, not just, but she came off a second place at Chuckanut to Ladia then too. So she's had a pretty good fall so far, fall going into summer. So job, Kimber. Yeah. yeah. Super, super um, happy for her. Other uh, East coast racing. Y'all, we've got East Coast Racing for you. Quest for the Crest happened this um, past weekend. And David Hedges, who we mentioned, came up to, came up in second place at the USA Track and Field Trail Marathon to Max King. Um, he won the Quest for the Crest. I think it's technically a 55K, 50K, 55K, but it's got like an insane amount of vert in it. Um, he won in 638 um, and then the female winner was Sabrina Stanley. This is her second time, I think in a row, maybe winning this race at this point, um, due to COVID cancellations. Um, she won in a time of eight twenty nine. um, and both David and Sabrina are headed over to the Mont Blanc marathon 90 K, which I think happens at the end of June, early July. So we're super excited to see them take, um, their fitness and speed over to Europe for, uh, for the 90 K, which is a really, really cool competitive race. I just have to say something about Quest for the Crest. I've I've run that race before and um it's like insane. Like if he has, I think it's a pretty similar course, but yeah, it's like a 55K. And uh within the first 5K, you do a proper VK. So it's like it's really steep. Um, and you summit like Mount Mitchell, it's like the tallest mountain east of the Mississippi. So it's uh yeah, it's got like twelve thousand feet of climbing or something yeah, in it. It's a lot, and it's pretty, it's pretty technical. It's uh so yeah, it's good to prep for like the you know, the the steep stuff in, in Europe. So, yeah, I don't know what David Hedges is doing later in the summer. Obviously he's on the, I don't know if he actually has a USA, if he's got a spot for the Thailand team, I bet he can apply and get a spot for that team racing worlds in Thailand. Um, these are two really great performances for him. Um, but obviously Sabrina, I know she'll do Mont Blanc 90 K and then she'll do UTMB. So kind of a good, a good build for her to get back into the mountains. Um, so very excited to see that. And then the last race that I had on my list was, um, a backyard, a last man standing race. It's called the backyard masters, um, that happened over the weekend or last week. Um, and I, I mean, I think the backyard format's really interesting. I'm like totally tempted to do one of these things. Um, but the backyard format it's, you run one loop that's approximately 4.167 miles. And you have to run one of those loops starting on the hour, every hour. Like if you don't leave the starting line, when the gun goes off every hour, you don't, you don't get to go type of thing. Like you can't like get out of your chair when the gun goes off. Like you have to be getting off the start line. Um, and it goes until there's only one person left to complete one final loop. So there's only ever one winner. And what's really cool about these though, is to get really, really far, like to get, like to set a record in this event, you have to have a super strong second place person because that person, you have to have someone to push you for in this case, 90 hours, 90 yards was the winning, was the winner of this, um, at this event. That's a new record for the backyard format. That is 603 kilometers or 375 miles. Um, that's really far. Oftentimes these events end after about 60 yards, which is still really, really far. Um, so and that's almost four days. It's almost four days of running. And it is, it's every hour on the hour. Um, and they run, these guys end up and gals end up running pretty consistent splits for the most part where they, you know, they're running 50 minutes over and over again. And they've got that like, you know, six to 10 minute buffer to take a mini nap, to eat, to change shoes, to do whatever they need. Um, but just really, really impressive. So 
there's a winner. And then whoever pushed that person all the way towards that finishing lap that we, they say that they get, they, they get the assist, which I love that. Like, and the assist goes to, because I think in, in that format, like that assist is so important Mm -hmm. because that's the only way you get, get this far into this race. So the winner was Marin Geertz of Belgium running again, 375 miles and 90 hours or 90 yards. And then the assist was Keith Russell of Ireland. Once again, he ran 89 yards, which is, you know, basically 371 miles. So super, super cool, insane, super impressive. Um, the scientist in me really wants to be able to monitor what they're actually doing during those little 10 minute power naps. Like, how are you able to sleep at all? They're in REM for like two minutes. (laughs) That's really impressive. It'd be super, super interesting. I mean, I've witnessed the ground nap during a 200 mile race now. Like (laughs) I've, I've seen people lay down for four and a half minutes and they'll tell you, wake me up in five minutes and four and a half minutes later, they exhale and they're up off the ground and they're running. Like mm-hmm. it's crazy to like to witness that short of a time period of sleeping. Like it makes such a huge difference in an event mm-hmm. like this. Like I've watched someone struggle to walk 25 minute miles, take a four minute ground nap and get up. And all of a sudden we're running 12 minute miles again. Mm-hmm. So it, it breathes new life into them somehow, but you're right. Like we need to get aura rings on all of them. That's all I want aura rings <laughs> on all of them so that we can collect sleep data. Yeah. I mean, Joe McConaughey for the, the, um, Cocodona, right. He did it in sub 60 hours and that was his strategy is eight minute, eight minute naps. And I mean, he's not, I mean, it's not four days, but still it's like nearly three. (laughs) So yeah, it works. And I've also seen this in invest in venture racing is the same thing. But the other thing is they take like caffeine or like a caffeine pill or like, I don't know, espresso or whatever. And they take their power nap and then they get up and then they're ready to go. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's wild to witness it. It's I don't know if I'm terrified of this this type of race are really intrigued by it. But when Biggs backyard, which is kind of the unofficial like world championship, um, every year happens for this event. I'm, I can't stop refreshing Twitter for days on end. So, um, yeah, shout out to a crazy cool format. And it's, you know, it's kind of like, it's not easy to crew because you might be crewing for 90 hours, but it's, you know, it's happening in a super controlled environment. And so that's really I don't know. There's like, it's low cost. It's easy to put these races on. So it's a very interesting format that's emerged over the last couple of years. And I'm very curious to see where it goes because it is super niche, but it's so, it's weirdly very engaging. Yeah. Never for me, but I do enjoy (laughs) watching other people suffer. Um, so I think we're going to slowly migrate into our news and then our news is just going to blur into the meat and potatoes, I think a little bit today. Mm-hmm. Um, who Keely, did you put this, the Joe Gray, New York times yeah. story in? I it's mean, super I cool. Like it's so cool. And I think the common theme for the news from the past couple of weeks is like inclusion and diversity and trail running is getting a lot more publicity than it used to. So that's a good step in the right direction. Um, So what I was referencing is that Joe Gray got his story around diversity in trail running highlighted in the New York Times, um, which is awesome and a really good step for Joe and a really good step for trail running. Um, And one of his biggest, you know, qualms with trail running is that, you know, you're growing up as a 
you know, a person of color, a child of color, whatever, you know, you're looking at these role models and you don't see people of color in trail running. You just don't, you don't see them hiking and camping. And we've definitely talked about this a lot before. And we talked a lot about this with Richard when he was our guest on the podcast. Um, And so I think, again, bringing this to a bigger publication and putting this in front of people is a really good thing from, from Joe's perspective. And I'm really excited to see that it's gaining traction in, in these big prints. Yeah. It's, it's about visibility right? Like that is kind of what it comes down to it. And we're going to talk more about that in the next article that we, that we put in these notes too. It's, it's about visibility and how important visibility is. And, um, I went on and I was, I was reading this article, um, and there's a great quote about inclusion in the article. Um, it's, it's an interview format. Um, Andy Cochran, who is a photographer, um, and, and storyteller in our sport was the person who conducted the interview and wrote up the article for the New York times. Um, and he was asking about inclusion, and Joe's response to that said, a lot of people like to say it is like that, that, that inclusion is growing in the sport is kind of what that's in reference to. And it says, but I don't really think so. It used to frustrate me when people would say there's no race, there's no racial issue in trail running, but I, and I, but I don't get so emotional now. Sure. Anyone can sign up for a race, but it's about how people react to you, how warm they are, the emotion and the optics. Lots of people think inclusion is a physical thing, but it's way more than that. I think that's really important. It's not just, it's not just saying, oh, well, anyone can, anyone's welcome at this race. Anyone can sign up for this race. Like inclusion and feeling included in the sport goes beyond that. And I really liked Joe's sentiment on that. And that like, he, he cares about his racing and he cares about his performance. He's the most decorated mountain runner in the U S maybe in the world. Um, he's made 33 national teams in the past 15 years, but like his focus too is on like mentoring the next generation, which I think is really, really important. I've got a friend um, in the Pacific Northwest, um, Max Antush, who um, is a black runner. And he grew up actually like kind of in the Tacoma area as well, which is where Joe, Joe grew up after his um, family moved back from Germany. His dad was in the military Um, and coaches would compare Max to Joe. And it was so cool for Max because he had this role model to look up to in, in, distance running in general, like going through track and cross country, like he had Joe to look up to, but then when he got into trail running post post collegiately, he also had Joe to look up to. And I think that's once again, visibility is important. Seeing other people do it before you is so, so important. So Joe's cool as shit and (laughs) he deserves to be printed up in the New York times 10 times over. Yeah. I I mean, think about this too, is like, if you create all of these buckets for minority groups to enter through and say you get a couple people to sign up, if they do the race and they don't feel the sense of community that maybe we feel or other people feel, or a lot of people on the course have, because they've met people before, then they might not come back. Right. So to Joe's point, like, yeah, it might be people thinking like, oh, we can change this physical thing by adding more people to the race. But again, if they don't feel at home there, they don't get the whole community vibe and they don't feel loved and like that everyone wants them to finish out there, they're not going to come back because trail running is hard and really, really difficult to do if you don't feel like you have a community behind you. So yeah, Mm -hmm. lots to do in this space, but I thought that was a really good step. Yeah. And then the other article you put in here that was published in Alterner Mag um, this month as well really speaks to that same thing, but focusing on female, uh, like, in, in making sure that there's female inclusion and equity in the sport and it's focused towards what race directors can do. And I thought that was really, I think that's important. Yeah. Race directors, like what can you do? I thought that was a really interesting take on it. Um, do you want to pull some, do you want to go over some of the stats that, that came out of that? 
Sure. Yeah. Um, so we found this article um, that kind of highlighted the Black Canyons 100K race director, who is Jubilee Page. And I remember, Corinne, I feel like you might have told me this, that she, you were there when she said, like, bring all the females to the front um, of the race. Or maybe it wasn't you, but someone told me this. And so it was really cool to see that highlighted in here and that she basically said that her goal with that was to use it as advertising material because like Joe's article as well, visibility matters. Um, and then she went on to highlight that the finishing rate for women at the 2022 Black Canyon 100K and 60K was 72%, while the male finishing rate was 65%. And so again, the women are maybe not signing up as much as the men, but they're finishing at a higher percentage rate than the men. So they're a little bit more calm and collected out there. They're more likely to finish what they start. Um, and then, yeah, it kind of just goes on to highlight that she hopes that by doing certain things like bringing the women to the front or highlighting these finishing stats, that there's going to be more resources towards females in the sport. And so larger events are going to be able to impact the sport and affect change like globally. Right. And she kind of gave Western States a kudos by starting a pregnancy deferral policy as a lot of races have kind of followed suit and hopefully a lot more races will follow suit, especially because a lot of very badass women are becoming pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Which, I'm sure I want them to race the next year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think it was, um, Jubilee, it's quoted in the article that Jubilee was like, come on women, it's 2022, like get up here. Like you're on, you're on the, you're on the front, you're on the starting line. You're on the front of the starting line. Um, Chrissy Mowell, I think we heard from some people after Chuckanut. I think Jen Quilty maybe reached out to us about that, about how Chrissy legitimately just like pulled women to the front of Chuckanut start line to be like, Hey, like get up here. Yeah. Um, like she made an announcement to be like, Hey, women to the front of the starting line and no one moved. And so Chrissy just like physically grabbed them and like moved <laughs> them to the front of the starting line. Um, and then Transgrand Canaria, I know I saw a picture of that too, where they had the women up on the front of the start line. I don't know if they focus, if they did that intentionally this iteration, but I know in previous iterations, um, they've made a point of doing that. And we actually, we pulled a photo for a recent I run far article. I wrote like for that reason, because they had pulled the women to the front of the start line for visibility. And with Chrissy too, it's like, I saw her at Chuckanut this year and she pulled me aside and she, I think I told you guys this hopefully offline. If not, I'm really sorry, but she told me that like, she is just so proud about that. Like what, what we're doing with trail society, because it's something that she's wanted to have in the space of ultra running for a long time, like that voice for women in the sport. So, yeah. That's cool. We love Chrissy. We love Chrissy. Yeah. Chrissy. I mean, women like Chrissy, women like Gina, um, Mm -hmm. they're leaders in our sport and we will, we'll follow them for as long as they lead us. I mean, (laughs) hopefully they'll make us leaders too, but this kind of segues, I think perfectly into, um, I don't know, we were all tagged in this and we're not, we're not here for cancel culture, right? It's not our thing. We're not here for cancel culture. So we're not naming names. Um, we will name the group though, because I think that's important. There's there because it, it really fits to the story here. There was, there's a group in the Wasatch called women of the Wasatch. Um, Leah Yingling's a part of it. Her husband, Mike does a bunch of photos for them that are beautiful. I, I want him to follow me around and take photos. If we can make that happen. Um, but they got trolled over the weekend and it was like the, and, and what came out of the trolling one was that this individual seems to have some stuff going on in their lives. And like, is, is hurting and is taking that on that, that out on other people, including doing some shady stuff, trying to make a point about the hard rock in, like women inclusion policy and the, the board is meeting about it and um, all this stuff. But the, the conversation that came out of this trolling within the comment thread was super interesting because 
I was really proud of a lot of guys who got, I mean, it's all of us can be brave on the internet, right? Like we're way braver on the internet than we might be in real life. But I was really proud to see a bunch of the guy, a bunch of guys in our sport who, who are well-known individuals kind of like sticking up for the women's group. And, and also just being like, this is why these groups exist. It's because people need to feel safe in their sport. We have to create a safe space where people feel welcome in the sport, be it gender inclusion, be it racial inclusion, um, be it, you know, any of these identities, right? Like it's really important to feel, to feel safe in the, in your activity, to feel safe in this world, to feel safe in the sport. Um, and it, the conversation really highlighted the importance of these groups in that sense. Um, and I was just personally really proud that 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 the men that showed up in that conversation for the most part were not just saying mean things back to the troll, but we're saying, you know, like, no, we're here for these women. Like, this is why these groups exist. Like that you're missing the point kind of was the comment. Um, and I just think it's, it's really important to, to, you know, to cherish these groups, to champion these groups, to support these groups, to join, to join these groups, right. To find that group in your community, to start that group in your community, um, that gives people a place and a space where they feel welcome. Maybe you run your normal group run for your running store, right? Like strive to make that a really welcoming place. If, if, if you're not, if you are not already intentionally striving to make it a really welcoming place. Um, so I just thought that was, it was really, really interesting to watch it play out over the weekend. Um, brought to our attention, I think, because we were tagged in the conversation. Um, but yeah, I think it it just highlights the need to be really intentional um, in continuing to try to create spaces where everyone does feel really welcome. It's kind of a somber rant on my end. It's a good one. <laughs> I don't have anything to add. I think it's great. What you said, not what he did. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And if anyone has ideas on that, right. Like how, like, how would you, we, we've talked about cat calling on here. We've talked about things like that. Like, I don't know the best way to respond to people like this because you're right. Like, like ignoring that person is not a good idea because it doesn't, it kind of just like, it doesn't really tell them that what they did was wrong. Mm -hmm. And that is important, right. We don't want to condone this behavior. Um, but yeah, if you have any ideas on that, give us a shout. It's kind of like, I feel like we're all just trying to figure out the best way to communicate with everyone and with each other. Um, and then I guess we're just going to keep segueing. There's so many segues <laughs> today. Um, we've kind of got some big, like intense, could be intense, um, varied, heavy topics today. Um, I just think it's important to say that from the get-go, right? Like we, whenever we approach these topics, we try to be really thoughtful and mindful. Um, we try to be as educated as possible and we will probably make mistakes. Um, but when the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court leak came out, I think we all felt a lot of things and we wanted to talk about that. We've been kind of batting this around offline between the three of us. Um, we talked about like just putting it in as like a news blip a couple of weeks ago. And that didn't really feel right either. And I think after digging into title nine more in previous episodes too, we figured that we would kind of take on the Roe v. Wade discussion in that same sense. So we're gonna talk about some history around Roe v. Wade. And then we're gonna talk about just like the implications of it and how, how we felt when we heard the news and kind of how we're dealing with those implications with the, with the implications now in our, in our communities and in our personal life. Um, 
and we're going to just roll from there. And then we're talking about birth control. So if you're not into Roe v. Wade, maybe you're into birth control. Um, so stick around, but we're going to do Roe v. Wade and then we're going to talk, talk birth control, which honestly, there's a lot of good tie-ins there. So mm-hmm. um, let's start with, say, if you're not into Roe v. Wade, then you might not be into birth control. <laughs> so then this just isn't for you, but I've had a lot of good comments from dudes about menstruation. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Me too. you know what, you should be here for this conversation as well. Mm-hmm. So, cause you probably love someone that this directly affects. Um, let's talk history. Keely, you pulled a bunch of good history notes, right? That was you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, I mean, and Hilly. Well, history, history. Yeah. And, and like Keely, you, like it's, it's awesome. Cause of course, like I heard this and I like dove deep into it, but I, I like, you can decide where to start, but I wanted to like, I have some kind of like big takeaways um, just to kind of like set us up. So Keely, you can let me know when you want me to throw that in there, but like, that's like, just so that we don't get lost in the weeds. Cause there, there is a lot of weeds with this. There's a lot of history that goes into it, but like, I just want to remind everyone that like, you know, it's, you know, in the United States, like Supreme court rulings, it sets a precedent that then things can be turned into law. Right. So that's what we're talking about here. Um, and so all the history that Keely has pulled that we're going to talk about is basically the precedent that something like Roe v. Wade has set and then things have become law. So. Yeah. um, So I was actually pretty interested in figuring out why or how Roe v. Wade came about, right? Because I think we were all starstruck with these headlines saying that this Supreme Court ruling was leaked, that it might become overturned. And all of a sudden, you know, abortion might become illegal in certain states because they're going to be up to the state jurisdiction. And so I was like, well, wait, what the heck's Roe v. Wade? Um, And it actually started in the 70s. um, And it was a lawsuit filed against Henry Wade, who was the district attorney of Dallas County, Texas, because Texas at that time was one of the states that did not allow abortions. Um, And it was actually in this woman called Jane Roe. (laughs) So not her real name, but that's what we're going to call her. Um, And she actually is a woman that kind of falls to the system where she gets pregnant a lot of times and ends up having a child, gives up one for abortion. And by the third one, she's a single mother trying to make ends meet. She decides that she can't go through pregnancy again. And so she goes to her doctor and, you know, asks for an abortion. He's like, no, actually, that's completely illegal. So I can't even refer you to someone. I'm actually supposed to report those that give abortions. Um, And so she decided to go the legal way and go through an attorney and figure out an adoption process. But along that journey, she actually was introduced to two up and coming legal stars. So these were two women who had just recently graduated law school, Linda Coffey and Sarah Weddington. um, And one of those who had, which had gone to Mexico to get an abortion of her own. Um, And they were new lawyers and they were searching for a case specifically to take to the Supreme Court to help overrule these abortion laws. And they thought she was like this perfect fit. And it was pretty much perfect for her as well, because she didn't really know what she was getting into, but she knew that this would help her in the long term. Um, and so they they presented it to the case or to the Supreme Court. It ended up going through and they won the case. Um, and specifically, they won because of the 14th Amendment, where it's actually protecting individual privacy and a woman's right to decide to have an abortion. And so in the 1970s, that was passed. And basically, since then, it has had significant impact on like mortality rates in females um, and for mortality rates of the live births where basically before the jurisdiction was passed and then after there was like a 300 X decrease in mortality rate 
for, for pregnant mothers, which is amazing. And then the mortality rate of the live births also dropped in half after this was passed. And so obviously this ruling not only helped Jane Roe, it helped a lot of women in the United States have healthier um, birthing processes and help save the lives of a lot of, of babies as well. Yeah. Cause it's important to remember, right. That like banning abortion doesn't ban abortions. It just bans safe abortions, it bans safe access to abortions. And so I think that's like a, a really, and at that point in time too, right. Like they didn't and all, they didn't oftentimes consider like the life of the mother or the life of the uh, fetus, like what, what that meant really. Right. And so, or like, would, would you allow someone to get an abortion? There are people that were hemorrhaging, for example, like they were having a miscarriage and they were hemorrhaging, but because they weren't allowed to have an abortion, like it would have to, they'd, they'd be sitting there hemorrhaging for days as, you know, medical counsel at the hospital decided if they could legally provide an abortion or not. So women were dying at higher rates, even, um, from, from delivery, from pregnancy and delivery. And, um, I mean, that's still, it's still a huge issue. It's still a huge issue, particularly in communities of color, um, because we don't take very good care of people of color in our health system. Um, but this did allow for safer access to like maternal fetal health. Right. And then also people, if, it, if they're in a place where abortion is not legal, dying from an, like from doing like a at home abortion or, you know, going to a place that's not necessarily clean. Um, but I mean, before we also get into kind of what happened too, um, Keely, like, so <clears throat> with like the Supreme Court, right, you cited like basically why this case won was because it's the 14th Amendment. Right. So obviously the constitution is kind of the law of the land of the United States. And so Supreme court justices can, you know, it's their opinion. They can interpret the constitution in different ways. So depending on the Supreme court justice that is presiding over this case, like you can pass certain things, right? So it all goes back to the constitution. So then in this, like, basically what happened, if we want to get into that now, is that like basically something, a document was leaked saying that Roe versus Wade might be overturned. And the reason that people are saying that Roe v. Wade might be overturned, or at least um, the certain Supreme Court justices that believe this, is they're kind of going back to the Constitution, that the Constitution is the law of the land, and that Roe v. Wade is taking that out of basically the, the representatives and the people that are voting, like this democratic policy of like state by state letting, making the decision. So instead of having to be federal law that abortion will be illegal, they're now going to delineate it if obviously Roe v. Wade is overturned to the states, right? So this now raises a bunch of issues from a state by state level that, you know, certain states that lean a certain political direction. This is a conversation that we've been having for 40 plus years that, you know, certain of, you know, the right versus the left, what they want to kind of the, the pillars of their, their political, um, I don't know, like, stature, I guess. But, um, uh, so yeah, that's basically what, what, why I think it's concerning to a lot of people. And obviously what we just talked about with the health risks and things like this. Yeah. Like, so it has not yet been overturned, but this document suggests that the, the, the majority of the court is conservative. Um, and the majority of the conservatives on the court are originalists, which is like this whole legal term for how they interpret the constitution. Um, but essentially, like when you've got, you know, a majority presiding over something that this would this could lead to it being overturned, which is 
which I think is, you know, that leaves a lot of unknowns for everyone. And I think that's why it's so scary and so emotional. And there are lots of states um, that have trigger laws in effect that basically, if this was to fall federally, there are laws in place. There are laws waiting to be in place, basically, in many mm-hmm. states that would go into effect immediately, which would greatly limit access to um, not just even le- safe and legal abortions, but in some states, certain types of birth control um, and that kind of thing, which is, uh, I don't know. I just, it's really scary. It's really scary to be a, to be a lady or to be someone who needs, who has, who has, um, you know, who might need, might need an abortion or might, who might need birth control um, mm-hmm. or to love someone who does, or to have a child who is, you know, who, who does like, it's that to me is like the very, it's a very scary precedent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And almost serendipitously, I was in Tahoe and the first book that I saw on the bookshelf was called The Human Body and the Law. And I'm not sure if you guys have ever read it. It was written initially in the 70s. It was rewritten in the 90s. But the second chapter in the book is about abortion law. And one of the things that it really highlighted to me, sorry, two of the things that really highlighted to me were as follows. So the first thing being that a lot of people fight for abortions to be illegal, to to save the infant's life. But the stats I kind of pulled earlier show that actually that's not the case, right? That actually more infants die when abortions were illegal due to infants being born in unsafe conditions, as well as when they are not healthy enough to be born. Um, And the third thing being that there's also a lot of regulation around timing with abortion, Um, first trimester, second trimester, third trimester, and actually 90% of the abortions actually happen during that first trimester. And only like 5% of the, or 1% of the remaining 10% are actually born or are actually conducted in the third trimester. And most of them are due to the, the health of the mother or the health of the infant. Yeah, so I think there's just so much nuance there where people are fighting for the different trimesters, but I don't know if they've actually looked at the data because if you do, it doesn't make sense to limit the trimesters either. Yeah, no, it, it has to do with, honestly, I think it has to do too with not even political leaning, but of like religious implications, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that that fall that that sometimes fall into political classifications. There was a really great, who was it? I think it was actually Pete Fox News let Pete Buttigieg have an interview. And that was just like the most brilliant mistake Fox News ever made. But basically in it, he brings up that stat. He brings up that stat on, and I'm not a Fox News watcher. I saw this interview um because it went viral um around the like in that election cycle. And basically he brings up that stat on air like in this live interview hmm. and you know he he says and it's like very powerful to think of it this way too like the women who are having late-term abortions and this is obviously we don't know every single woman who's ever had an abortion but people in that position it's either they either don't have access to healthcare or it's like yes it's the life of the mother or it's the life of the the unborn child or that child is not like will not survive outside the womb and it's those those people are having to make the hardest decision of their entire life. Those people have bought cribs. Those people have a name picked out. You know, it's like that's who you're demonizing in that's in that sense, which is like not which is not fair to anyone. I mean, it's not fair to demonize anyone who gets an abortion in general, but that like he he spoke very eloquently to that to specifically that statistic. And I thought that was really interesting. So people know that statistic. It's not a hidden hmm. statistic, but that's why you have these like heartbeat laws that are coming into effect in certain states. These super restrictive abortion laws that you know make 
make abortions illegal after like six weeks or seven weeks. And honestly, a lot of women might not even know they're pregnant at six weeks. And the hard thing too, is like another argument. I think that the right versus the left is going um, kind of back and forth on is like now with medical advances, right? Like when can a, can a fetus be considered viable? Right. So then there's kind of this information being flown out there too, but yeah, you're right. There's like totally, there's so many different nuances with that. Um, Yeah. But I didn't see that interview, but now I want to. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's a great little snippet. Just they answer, they just let like threw him the softball and he just, (laughs) Or he like the, you know, it's like the perfect setup in volleyball and he just spikes it back down. And it's just, it's, it's brilliant. I was like, good job, Pete. Uh, Always using good sports analogies for, for that. I love it. I love it. I cry. I've played just (laughs) enough sports to say most of them in the correct order of operations. But also like, I mean even like last week on the episode talking about like how you wh- what did you say like your egg is like being like something drop kick down <laughs> it was a fo- we talked about football, football last it's yeah okay. yeah so that was a good sports analogy anyways <laughs> i mean there, there are more coming don't worry i've already i've already got some lined up for birth control talks but yeah so it's, it's a really interesting it's it's both interesting and horrible right that that we are it feels like we're going backwards Right. Like it feels like we're going back in time with this being potentially, you know, that like in not even just in our lifetime, like in the next, you know, in the near term, we could see something like this overturned. Um, and I guess, you know, that could result in a bunch of different things. Like we're seeing, I mean, even when this was a year ago, when Texas um changed their um Texas changed the date, like basically the week in which abortions were legal versus illegal. And that already caused huge stress on neighboring states with women having to get to Oklahoma um, and other places. They were going to New Mexico to, to seek, to seek abortion care. Um, And that's only going to increase with this. And we're going to see havens arrive like abortion havens arrive. I know um, Gavin Newsom in California, they're already putting aside money um, for that care. Um, with the understanding that, that San Francisco will become an abortion haven potentially if this was to was if Roe v. Wade was to be overturned. And that's like that's just really um Stephen knows of uh of a physician who's talking about moving her family closer to the to the border of the state she lives in because um she is I think she's actually technically a family medicine doctor, but um has been trained to perform abortions, both medical abortions um and uh, surgical abortions. And so using, using medication versus, um, something more invasive. And she's talking about moving her family so that she can provide better care. If this was to go through, um, by moving to a location that will put her, you know, kind of in, in the path, um, to take on these cases, which is just, that's a really, that's a scary job to be in because you know, these people are going to be targeted too. So it's just, there's, I don't know, it gives me the heebie-jeebies and makes me very sad. So, yeah, I mean, me too. And I think it's just, I, yeah, I want to like, we can talk about like, what, like, what are the implications? Like, why is this important? And how does it relate back to, cause I think this is a perfect segue into, into what our, as Corinne says, our meat and potatoes are, um, is our, of the episode. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think what, what concerns me the most actually is that when they did approve this case, when, when the ladies did win right back in the seventies, it was because this case was protected by the first, fourth, fifth, ninth, 
14th amendments, a lot of amendments, right? But specifically Mm -hmm. the 14th amendment, again, I'll reiterate this again, it protects individual privacy. And this amendment has been used to win a lot of cases recently and in the past, right? Um, Specifically cases on birth control, contraceptive, uh, same-sex marriage, basically saying that like married people have the right to decide to use birth control. They have the right to raise their children a certain way that people have same-sex marriage couples have the right to be like together. There's a lot of things that Mm -hmm. cite these amendments. And so my thought automatically goes to this turning into a kind of a snowball effect, right? Where all of a sudden people start using this overturning as a way to overturn other um, like court rulings. And I don't like the thought of that. It's it's exactly what we talked about at the beginning, like setting a precedent and then those precedents become like turning, right? Having other laws, like exactly like you said, like a a snowball effect. And same here. I mean, I mean, we're talking about like relation to birth control, right? Like if you think about certain states that are already out that already have laws either in place or they are certain like maybe more conservative leaning and have laws against abortions. We are we know that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, that those states maybe they'll be willing to they want to take more stands on things like certain types of birth control, right? Um, But I'd like to think that because of these amendments, particularly the 14th, that things like birth control in and you know privacy in the home will be protected right mm-hmm. now maybe that won't go after protect all certain forms like i would think particularly maybe plan b uh, in those states maybe would be would be banned but right this is like something that is like scary um and the problem that i see um or fear that i would have is that if then states kind of take another level and then they would maybe make it illegal for someone to cross like a state border to go into another state where abortion or other things would be legal and then you know kind of do what they what they need there um yeah yeah there there are a lot of logistics that would need to be in place to make some of this happen like someone's idea like you're going to take a pregnancy test to travel i think that's a little extreme i don't think anyone i don't think anyone has the money to police women's bodies quite to that extent but they're trying they're really (laughs) really really trying yeah Yeah, never say never dystopia here we come um i think during the pandemic we joked that it was like the weirdest season finale of america ever and this is definitely part of that season finale (laughs) of america um oh my gosh hold on i have one thing to say um so if we're thinking back to jane roe that she got this this uh roe v wade was passed in 1970 right so if we if we fast or we go back in time we see that birth control was just created in the late 1960s and that it wasn't even legal for unmarried people until 1972. So birth control wasn't even an option for Jane Roe. And so I think that's just a really interesting thought to have is that there was no other option, right? Like she couldn't even proactively prevent that from happening. And so, yeah, that's just where my thought goes. Yeah. Well, I mean, you think about America overwhelmingly at that time period too, being like a Puritan Catholic religious place, which is rapidly changing, which all for the better. Um, but I do think like in some of those groups as well, that like they've had stances like that have been anti-birth control, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, like traditionally and historically. And I don't think that's the case anymore, but that has been like, that was, that was a value within that society, within that church for a very, very long time. So I think like there are a lot of implications there within our society that go beyond politics and and go towards these kind of more these, these personal values and morals. And it's, um, it's really hard to argue with another individual's, what they see as their values, mm-hmm. right? Like just because our values are different doesn't mean that we're bad people. But I do think that, um, it's, 
it becomes harder to have that conversation when it's, when it's people's values that are kind of what is butting heads there. Yeah. But I mean, values aside, like you're telling me that birth control is worse or an abortion is worse than forced sterilization, which was the practice of the time. Right. Like, yeah, that's absolutely blows my mind that like we were anti-abortion. We were anti-birth control. However, during the sixties and seventies, we were still allowing forced sterilization of massive groups of women. And so, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. No, this, this no it's, in, it's, it's insane. <laughs> well, I mean, the further can of worms too is right. Like that will, that people will, the, this is the hill they're willing to die on. Right. The, 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 you know, like the, the fetus should be protected, but as soon as that fetus becomes a baby and is in the world, we don't want to give that mother access to food stamps if they need it or, um, a support care. Like, I don't know, just general access to mental health, like services, like we, it's, it's an interesting hill to die on when you're willing to do anything possible to, to force someone to carry a child to term, but you don't want to help them or the child really after that point either. Like that's an issue, I think. Oh, totally. The issue too, that I see is like, and also the burden just falls on the woman. Like it just falls on the woman. So there's, there's, there's others, there's some, some, um, beliefs and like some, some things on, on, on the left that's saying like, regardless of this hope it happens is that like, you know, maybe having some responsibility on, on the father. Um, so he doesn't just, you know, end up like, you know, leaving or whatever, like some financial burden or something like this, because a big problem that I see is that, okay, like, it, it just affects women. Like the, the burden of this is on, is on women is largely, largely on women. for Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, and, and when, and the child, obviously, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And you see this like through the history of both Roe v. Wade and abortion rights and the development of birth control, right? Like we developed birth control for women to start. And then we continued to develop new like technologies for women that just continued to fail, right? To fail women. So we would start with high dose estrogen that failed. We had to pull that out of market. We had to start with a little bit lower dose estrogen. We started adding in progestin. We launched some IUDs that were, that were not safe after a while. We launched a lot of things over the course of the past 30 years during this birth control journey that ended up not being safe for females. But did we ever launch anything for the male along that entire Vasectomies. <laughs> vasectomies. We launched vasectomies for all. No, I, I totally, I totally get that, but that's, you know, it's, it's, and, and the craziest part too, is that like how frequently can a, a, a woman can get, like, you can get pregnant for like a 72 hour window once a month, maybe. Right. And then it's like, or maybe a little bit longer because sperm have a weird lifespan. Um, but then, so like, so that there's that, Right. And then it's like, and then you can only really carry one child a year. So why are women the people that we've targeted for this? We don't seem to be the people with an abundance of something (laughs) that is necessary to conceive a child. Right. Yeah. And it's like, we have this short window. So why would we want to mess with our hormones the most? Because we are needed to make the baby. Right. And we are only fertile for these couple of days and we only have a limited amount of eggs. And so really messing with the hormones of females doesn't may seem like the most logical option, but you know, alas, that's, that's where we are. Yeah. Okay. So before we dive, because we de- we're definitely diving into the birth control talk, we are deep into the birth control talk. So I want to do, I want to say two or three quick things to wrap up kind of the importance of Roe v. Wade before we fully commit to the birth control journey, um, and rant about vasectomies for all. Um, 
That is that once again, banning abortions does not ban abortions. It just bans safe abortions. And the, those who will be the most impacted by that are people who have the least means, right? Rich people are going to be fine. White people are white, rich people are going to be fine. People who have right, have privileges are going to be fine. It's going to impact those with the least means. Um, and there are so many reasons why people get abortions and guess what? They're personal. That's why the 14th amendment held up. It's personal. And you, you, me, any of us, we do not owe anyone an explanation for why we might need, want, or have had an abortion. And I think that's just really, really important because it seems like we always have to like give a reason why. And that's just, it's privacy, baby. It's personal. Um, okay. On that note, we're going back to birth control. It's what you're all here for. You made it through Roe v. Wade. Um, Keely, since you're our historian today, our lovely historian, I called you a goddess about something recently, and now I'm going to call you our lovely historian. So I don't know if that's a better title or a, it's definitely not a sexier title. That's for sure. Um, but you, you talked a little bit about kind of the progression of birth control and how it seems like a lot of trial and error to try to make this work for women. And I'm just kind of wondering, you know, is there anything else in that historical timeline that's important for us to know before we kind of dive into like the nuts and bolts of what's available on the market right now and how that might impact your health and performance? Yeah. I mean, I think that what would be really fascinating is if we could overlay the history of birth control timeline with the timeline of Roe v. Wade and abortion rights and women's rights in general, and just see how this all kind of goes together. But I would say just to, to my previous points is that we started in the 1960s creating birth control and we started creating something crazy high in hormones that had a lot of detrimental effects to women. Um, and actually coinciding with the Roe v. Wade case in 1970, a ton of feminists challenged the safety of these contraceptive pills. And, and slowly those doses were, were reduced. Um, this kind of is a common theme. As, as more FDA um, drugs are approved, they find out later that they're not great for women and they have to revoke them and tweak them and then push them out again. And, and to me, it really just highlighted that like we're, we're creating things um, and we're not actually putting a ton of thought into how to do it. Right. So we're putting this out there and it could be super detrimental to females. And then we're, oh, shoot, we'll, we'll revoke it and we'll fix it. But we're not putting the time in ahead of time to actually make it so that it's really safe for females. And it's kind of crazy. Um, and then I'd say one more thing to add is just like we started creating IUDs and all these other things. And, and slowly we started adding things to policy that gave women rights to these and gave them insurance to cover these things. So that in 2010, we created the Affordable Care Act and all of a sudden women could get birth control for free. And so that was monumental. And it hasn't been until recently that the administrations that are in power now or the past administration were actually decreasing these previous enacted statements, right? So now all of a sudden there are certain states and certain populations that aren't getting access to birth control again. And so I think it's pretty crazy that we're actually going backwards right now instead of forwards in terms of getting birth control into the hands of females. And so I think we're at a really interesting time, kind of looking at all of that data in line with the Roe v. Wade. And I hope we can, we can forge a pass forward. Yeah. I think my first, my first IUD, I'm an IUD too. I'm talking about this more later, but my first one I got in Montana in oh, probably 2013, I want to say, um, maybe 2014. Um, 
and it was expensive. It wasn't I for whatever reason in Montana or where the, the the clinic that I went to, it was I don't think my insurance covered an IUD. It would cover oral contraceptive, like oral birth control pills, but it wouldn't cover an IUD. Um and so my I, I got lucky my then boyfriend now husband split the cost with me for the IUD. He was like, "Well, I guess I benefit from this too." So, I'll pay I'll pay half, but it wasn't it wasn't cheap for being a really effective form of birth control. Um, so it's kind of insane that we're, you know, we, we don't want abortions, but we also don't want to make access to birth control easy or affordable. Like this seems, this seems like a conspiracy theory somehow. Yeah. It makes a good plot for a movie or a book like the handmaid's tale or something. Yeah. And I mean, when I, I'll just like share about when I was first getting on birth control, like it was, um, it was for a different reason. Like my mom has, um, she had osteopenia and, um, and I was very active and my, my period wasn't normal. We talked about this in the last episode. So I got on birth control as a way to kind of regulate my cycle. And I've had a lot of trouble finding something that was like right for me. And I had migraines when I was younger and the type of birth control that I was on, it seemed like it was correlative. Um, to the severity of my, of my migraines, like the type of hormone that, 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 that I was taking. And this is the NuvaRing at the time. And then, um, yeah. And so then I had to kind of do different research and try different things. Um, but they put you on birth control because you weren't getting a regular cycle. Hmm. That's yeah. it, was, it was super common. It's still, it's it still insane. happens, but it's, it's not smart. We'll talk about right. And, <laughs> we and, know and, it's not a good idea. Yeah. And then also like, we'll get into this too. Maybe this is like foreshadowing into a future episode, but this is all of this stuff around women. And like Keely, you mentioned like too high of estrogen, right? Like hormones can be bad for, for a lady, um, hormone replacement therapy for a woman who stopped menstruating. This, ha- this actually happened to my mother where she actually got a lump in her breast and it was cancerous due to the hormones that they were prescribing her for hormone replacement therapy. And this is, just happening now this is still like a very new um area of study right i feel like we're like guinea pigs maybe Mm -hmm. yeah we don't like to do research on females we've talked about that before um okay so before we dive into like the nitty-gritty details about some what what is like most most commonly on the market right now um which i think is good information for everyone um and then you know telling our personal stories, maybe our personal horror stories. We don't want to make it horrific, right? There are good, there are pros and cons to everything, but we just want to state that there are many reasons why people use birth control. People use them for many reasons beyond trying to avoid pregnancy, right? That was a big deal in high school. Like if you're on birth control, you must be sexually active, blah, blah, blah. It's not always the case. As Hilly just mentioned, she actually was put on birth control to try to kind of control, regulate and or jumpstart her period, which I know when I was in high school was super common. Um, what for, for female athletes, if they weren't getting their period, that was the option was to, was that's how that we approached it. Right. This is pre, um, the IOC putting out a statement about low energy availability. This is pre the IOC putting out a statement about relative energy deficiency in sports. So I feel like we've learned a lot in the past decade, but there are many, many reasons people on birth control besides just trying to prevent pregnancy. Um, it decrease, they can decrease menstrual bleeding people who have super heavy, heavy periods and are becoming anemic, um, to control your cycle, uh, to improve skin health, to decrease cramps and premenstrual syndromes, um, people who have uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome or endo- endometriosis, um, to, to, um, things that can be incredibly painful, um, can be benefited by certain types of birth control. Um, 
but we've also, as you just mentioned, as we all kind of just like chuckled and we're like, wait, that's a real thing. Hilly, you got put on the Nuva ring to try to do this. Um, they're oftentimes used improperly. Um, they're used for treatment of eating disorders and amenorrhea for low, for low bone mineral density. Exactly. Like what Hilly said. Um, and it's not, that's not the appropriate, we know now that that's not the appropriate thing to do, but that's not widely necessarily known even amongst healthcare providers now, yeah. right? Because it's like, when is that re-education happening? When is that literature being distributed? Um, so I feel like that's a very progressive notion. And um, this is really good for you to know if you're listening at home and that's what your doctor recommends for you. We've got like, reach out to us. We've got some literature, reach out to the faster group at Stanford. They'll have literature for you um, that you can bring into your provider, into your, your ob guy or your primary care provider um, to kind of push back on that and find what, find a, a different solution because mm-hmm. We know that that's not really an appropriate one. It's it's putting a Band-Aid on it. It's not actually treating the problem. Yeah. And while we're bashing doctors, not all doctors are bad nope. um, by any means, but we all come from different places. Um, we all come from diff- like, like literally like regional places, but also just like time, like time periods. Um, and you do want to talk to like, we are not, well, we might be three very smart women and have a lot of life experience combined all together. Um, we're not a doctor. None of us are currently doctors. Um, Keely's gonna try to be a doctor and we're very (laughs) excited when she becomes one. Um, but you know, this is a conversation for you to have with your physician, but if you need other documentation or literature to bring into your physician, reach out to us. We'd love to help, help y'all out. Yeah. And kind of on that note, it's, it's, it's not until recently that there was any research that said not to use oral contraceptives during amenorrheic amenorrhea cases or eating disorders. So, um, cut your physician some slack yeah. to another physician, gather some data and then present that. So, yeah. Cause you'll be helping them treat many other people too. And that's kind of the, I think for the most part, many physicians are very welcome to, to receiving that literature so that they can do better for their patient populations. If they do not yet know what the current like stances on that stuff. Should we talk about birth control types? Types. Okay. Were either of you ever, Hilly, it sounds like you were, I, I was on or an oral contraceptive for a very short period of time. Were either Keely, were you as well? A very, very short period of time. And I absolutely hated it. So I got off it in about two months, maybe. I couldn't do it because I couldn't take it at the same time every day. (laughs) You're just like, I'm not good at this. Yeah. I were, so we're three failures at oral contraceptives if we're getting out of this three for three. That's yeah. that and, says and something. My doctor tried to work with me. She tried to say, "Oh, we can alter the estrogen dose because a lot of the times, if you're having too much bleeding or not enough bleeding, it's you know estrogen or progesterone is out of whack." But I did not have the patience um, to deal with that because I had just felt like not myself for two full months. So yeah, and they say, "Okay, if you stick it out for three months, it 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 regulates, it gets better." But man, that's a really hard three months, particularly if you're like trying to do your sport. Um, I know that was really, really hard for me. I, yeah, I think I might've lasted the three month mark. And then I just was like, I did not feel at home in my body. Um, like I'd never had body dysmorphia, but I was getting body dysmorphia. Um, like it just was not, not a good place Did not work for me, but all these, all the contraceptive methods that we're going to talk about today, all the birth control, the, the pills and the IUDs and some other things that are currently, that are currently in the that, wow, that are currently on the market. There we go. Words. Um, they are going to work for some people and they're not going to work for other people. Us bashing birth control pills does not mean that they don't work for you. Okay. But we're going to talk about what they do, 
like kind of mechanisms, how they work and then kind of the pros and cons of them. And then we're going to dive into some literature. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Yeah. And, and oral contraceptives, um, I actually chuckled while I was kind of reading into oral contraceptives because it reminded me a lot of the disordered timeline um, where they started creating it with a monophasic approach, which means it just releases one hormone over the cycle, um, like one pulsatile nature consistently. Um, and then it went to biphasic and then polyphasic. And it was almost like people were guessing. They're like, what should we make this cycle like? Because when the, re- when the research came out looking at the three, they actually found there was absolutely no difference um, between monophasic and biphasic. So they kind of axed the biphasic um, like tendency and just stuck with monophasic and polyphasic. And polyphasic tries to mimic your cycle. So it is trying to cycle different hormones at different levels at different times. Um, However, all of them are releasing either one of the three combinations. They'll either release strictly estrogen, they'll release estrogen and progestin or only progestin. This is also called the mini pill. This is something Corinne told me about. I'd never heard about the mini pill, um, but that is just the progesterone only. Um, And typically they're delivered over 21 days. And then you get seven days of a placebo pill, often called the withdrawal pill. And you'll see kind of these daily surges in whatever hormone is in your birth control pill about one hour after ingestion. And it goes about two times X what your, what your normal resting level is. And so instead of, you know, during our normal menstrual cycle, we see these crazy changes in all different kinds of hormones. When you're on one of these oral contraceptives, you actually just see a similar surge every day. You take that pill, um, about one hour after you actually ingest it. And I think one of the interesting things about the birth control pill, because I was reading a lot about this when I wrote the women, the women's section for um, Jason Coop's second edition of Jason Coop's book was about how it basically put women into this like kind of daily mini cycle. It was like, cool. And the mini cycle kind of puts you into is that like that phase that people generally, it seems don't feel the best in, um, in your, like in a right prototypical 28 day cycle. And so it's kind of like this mini terribleness every single day was how it was described in the literature, in my words. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. And the second part of that too, was that when you are taking oral contraceptives um, or um, I think some of the shots have worked with this too, is it's system circulating, circulating, i.e., right? Like it has a greater impact on your body's own ability to produce and release estrogen and progesterone which is like, that's kind of a big deal. I feel like it down regulates that. Right. So it really does like dictate and control your cycle as opposed as opposed to letting your, your hormones naturally cycle because their system, they, they circulate system wide. And so it makes sense that there's a lot of like that. A lot of people experience side effects on something like that, because you're, you are really changing how your hormones function specifically estrogen and progesterone. I think those are yeah. kind of the big, the big like cons that I saw, like pros were, you know, there's maybe control there. Um, you know, you could, you could know, oh, okay, I'm going to get my period during this block and I, I don't want it during that block or whatever, but I don't know if that's actually a benefit, like given what we know now about um, athletic performance and the menstrual cycle, I don't know if being able to control that seven day window is the biggest thing besides maybe getting to wear white shorts and not bleeding through them. But then like the cons being that down your down regulation of your body's natural ability to, to create and release um, those hormones seems like a big deal to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that's why a lot of people do end up not wanting to be on the oral contraceptive, at least as of lately in my friend circle. 
Yeah. I feel like I never, it just never wasn't going to work. And, and, but it is still very widely used. Um, and most of the research that we're going to talk about a little bit later on have, has been done on oral contraceptives. There really isn't because the, those do influence the hor- influence hormones the most. We're about to talk about IUDs and we'll talk about how they're different, even though there is a hormonal IUD available. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Corinne, you're not, you're not targeted for many studies. No, I'm not. And I've written some really mean emails mm-hmm. to whoop. Um, I haven't had to write any mean ones to aura, but I was, um, in a test pool for whoop, um, last year and they asked me about my cycle and they asked me about birth control and they asked if I was on a hormonal birth control. And technically I am, I I'm, I use Mirena. I have a hormonal, I have a progesterone based IUD. There was no option. There was no option to select that. It was, you were on a hormonal contraceptive or you were not, you were naturally cycling. And I sent some really strongly worded emails. So I was like, your data is dirty. You don't know who you're surveying because no one understands if they're actually on a hormonal birth control or not. And that's like a very typical thing in these kind of big data pools, these big data research pools is that like they aren't differentiating there. And I think that's a major issue. Yeah. But you you have to differentiate because it's it's going to change things, right? Well, I mean, yeah, just just like what I said, like it trying different things based on lifestyle, right? Another reason why again, not to bash on oral contraceptives, but like for as much as I travel now, it doesn't suit my lifestyle. Like I would have to like what if I'm in France? Like how do I back calculate the time that I'm supposed to take it? You know what I mean? It's like that's something that I'd get into, but yeah, like different and and just some things not going to work the same for, for everyone. I mean, we were talking like referencing, I forget which episode was it the last episode, but basically it was the last episode. Like we presented this graph and I think we have it in the, in the show notes, but like our conclusion from this is that every single woman has a different experience during, like during her cycle, as opposed to like, there's no significant you know, conclusion or, or, or like scientific, like, I don't know, evidence to support anything. Right. It's like, I don't know. Yeah. The graph, the graph was that you could have a good day on any day of your cycle and you could have a bad day on any day of your cycle was kind of the conclusion there. But what we're talking about here too, is that progesterone based IUD. So we're gonna talk about IUDs now, interuterine devices. Um, the big difference here, and this is really, really important is that oral contraceptives are, are system circulating IUDs have a local effect of that hormone, but you hear hormone and you say, oh no, no, no. I've had a bad experience with these hormones before, or I've been told not to mess with my hormones before. And so you shy away from this thing. Mm -hmm. And I am here to convince you all to get a Mirena. (laughs) Hashtag not sponsored. Um, Okay. So IUDs, intrauterine devices, um, intrauterine devices, they, for the longest time, um, people who had not yet had a kid were not allowed to have one, like we're not allowed to have one of these placed because they just didn't, they thought that we were more likely to expel them, that your uterus would basically say no and spit it out. Um, that's not the case. They do fit in two uteruses that have not yet held a child um, or a fetus. So this is like, it's it's been a big deal because they're good for a long time. Um, the progesterone based ones like Morena or Skyla or Kyla, they all have like kind of cutesy names. Um, the progesterone based ones are good for, it depends on their dosage, but Mirena, for example, is good for five years. It's approved for up to seven years in Canada and Europe. So I had mine for seven years before getting it replaced last October, but essentially it works by it's inserted into your uterus and it works by, um, the progesterone acts locally. 
And so it works by, wow, I've said that three times now by increasing, um, the mucus, like that, like kind of blocks your cervix. So sperm cannot get into your uterus, like thumbs up mucus plug. The second thing it does is that that was, that's what I was thinking about. Um, decreases the buildup of your uterine lining, um, which makes it difficult for an embryo to implant in the uterus. So it's kind of got a dual, a dual effect, but because it doesn't disrupt because it's not system circulating, it doesn't disrupt your circulating hormones. Um, which is really cool, right? Like I, I go through a normal cycle. Well, air quotes, normal, who knows if I'm normal or not. Um, I go through a cycle every single month where I have estrogen and progesterone, um, in flux where I ovulate most months. Um, those are all really good things. Um, so I mentioned that because another reason why people shy away from something like a progesterone based IUD is that Mirena is kind of a higher dose one, but it lasts the longest. So that's why most people lean towards it. Um, approximately 20% of women lose the bleeding portion of their cycle, um, on a hormonal IUD like Mirena. And that's because, right. You don't have a uterine lining to shed because Mirena is working. It's doing its job. Um, and so if you are worried that you, deal with low energy availability or red S and that, and, and, and bleeding once a month is the only way that, you know, if you're healthy, this, this could be, this could be an issue, right? That could be a reason not to, not to use this. That being said, Keely and I have both talked about there, are, there are ways to know if you're, if you are ovulating that are pretty cheap and pretty reliable, um, including like measuring your basal body temperature. So there are things to know if you've got system circulating hormones, um, Mm-hmm. So that, that is a plus it's cheap and effective. Um, but I totally understand the risk there of why people might want to avoid it basically. Yeah. And and I'm just really upset that there's so much lack of literature in this space. Like you can't even figure out what female systemic circulating hormone levels are when they're on, on a hormonal IUD. There's not been many studies around this. I've found some radiology reports that basically did a literature review of past patients, um, looking to see if, there was a circulating hormone in those images just to see if like the IUD does have systemic effects. And so I don't think anybody really knows, but I think that could be a really, really cool study because be I think it would be good cool to study. know, right. Does it impact it a little bit? Does it impact it a lot? Does it impact it? Not at all. We don't, we don't know. There's we don't no know studies with a Corinne before IUD and a Corinne after IUD. Totally. And, and all I can tell you is that like, I've never had a super heavy period and I still, I still get a period, but it's pretty light. Um, that changes a little bit over the lifetime for me of the, of Marina now that I'm on my second one. So when I, when I had my last one pulled, I was probably getting more of a period towards like the end of its lifespan versus on year one of it. And same again, like I've got a brand new shiny IUD. It's got lots of progesterone on it. So my period is lighter now than it has been because of that. And so like there is, you know, that is taking place, but all of my other, you know, normal, you know, pre-period issues, they didn't go away. Um, that kind of thing. So I do think that there's like, it does seem to be fairly localized. And we do think that it, it might, it might affect ovulation a little bit because progesterone is kind of the biggest, like the biggest, one of the biggest players there with ovulation. But I, I know I've, I've tested ovulation and I know that I've been ovulating. Um, so that's kind of an interesting, interesting thing, but we don't have a lot of research on it. Um, other reasons that Mirena or progesterone based IUD is good is that it can help people with endometriosis pain. Um, which is great. It also decreases risk of pelvic infection and endometrial cancer, um, super effective. And it lasts for a long time. 
it cannot, like, I think the biggest con for sure is, um, is the whole, just maybe you might not bleed. And that can be, that can be an issue if that's your canary in the coal mine, um, from the literature or like from like the pamphlets in particular, people are potentially at a higher risk for ovarian cysts, which would make sense if you're not ovulating. Um, it's possible that you would have, you would develop more cysts, but I was a person who had a cyst rupture once a year, starting in grade nine or grade 10. And since having an IUD have not had a cyst rupture, have not grown a giant cyst, nor had a cyst rupture. So I don't really know what's going on there, but that was something that I was a little hesitant about when I got Morena because I had had this horrific experience with ovarian cysts starting as like a 14 year old. Um, and then the other main IUD that's on the market is Paragard, which is copper. It's non-hormonal. And I think a lot of people have leaned into it. One, cause it's good for 10 years, like hell yeah. Um, but when you hear hormones with, with something like Morena, I think this becomes a really, really good option. Um, it works very similarly. It's placed within the uterus, but what it does, and here's my, uh, my funny visualization, Hillary. Um, so Paragard is a, it's got a copper like foil wrapped around it. Um, it's kind of like a little T IUDs are like a little T and it's got a copper foil coil wrapped around it and coil or the copper is toxic to sperm. And so I picture Paragard just kind of ninja chopping sperm as they come into the uterus. Um, that's the only way I've ever thought about IUDs. Um, so basically it's, it, the copper is toxic to sperm. It also, um, has an impact on implantation. So it mm-hmm. seems like it's kind of, it doesn't, it doesn't allow for implantation. Um, it's as effective as the progesterone based IUD. Um, once again, good for 10 years, it same like akin to progesterone, there are no hormones. And so it doesn't have as many side effects as that, like an estrogen based birth control would have like high estrogen birth controls have a, a higher increased risk of like blood clots, for example. So a progesterone based IUD or mini pill or a copper IUD would decrease those risks. The big nasty con of the Paragard is that. Can I talk over, about it? Yeah. I was going to say overwhelmingly heavy bleeding, which is why I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, so this is the one that I have. And I was actually drawn to it because of the non-hormonal, just because of, um, I think people still don't know what causes migraines, but there's some sort of belief that it's linked to hormones. But, and also for me is that it was important to kind of track my, um, my training, um, and like let my own hormones kind of regulate it. So it's like, so that I could, um, I don't know. This is the non-hormonal one kind of just, it spoke to me and it works really well. You had a terrible me. experience with the hormonal birth I control. did. So and I was so like, I don't know why I avoid didn't it. want it. But like, yeah, that was the thing too. And actually, so the, uh, the big, the big con is that it's heavy bleeding, longer periods and maybe spotting and it's lessons over time. But I remember that I never had cramps, like never. And then when I got in the copper high UD, the first three months, I literally thought that I had like pulled my hamstring. I was like, what is this feeling? And then I talked to my friend who had like, you know, really bad cramps. She's like, Oh hell, like I get this every month. I'm like, how do you survive? And then like, it's lessened over time, but yeah, that's the big, that's the big con there. And so now that doesn't, doesn't happen to me. I think it took maybe three months to kind of stabilize. Um, but 
Yeah. Yeah. If you can wait, if you can wait out the three months, that seems to be, and, and I've heard it, <laughs> I heard, I've heard six months. Like it's a, yeah. I think it's like, if, if your body takes to it, basically mm-hmm. it should, it should just like an oral contraceptive, like it should regulate over time, but it's, yeah, it's like no one, my, my mom tried to use Paragard back in the day or whatever the copper version was then. And like, mm-hmm. just could it, like, it was too much bleeding. I'm mm-hmm. chronically dealing with anemia. So for me, that was not going to be a good no. bleeding more was not a good option, but yeah, I've heard about the cramping and the back aches and that kind of stuff seems you got to stick it out, but man, yeah. that seems, I hope I, I do. I do know that it works for people, but you have to be able to make it to the point where your body either agrees with it or doesn't agree with it. And yeah, now my body agrees with it, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's been, it's been good, but yeah, you're right. So I'm, I think like, I, I know actually except for my friends who got Paragard and they actually had to take it out because it, it was just, it was, it was too much. Yeah. And another reason that Paragard might not work for you is that not, I mean, this is, I think it's fairly rare, but there's a disease called, there's a disorder called Wilson's disease in which you absorb um, more copper than you should. And so, which if you absorb it like that, it can um, deposit in your vital organs, like your brain and your liver places where you don't want heavy metals to deposit themselves or metals to deposit themselves. So um, that's just something to know that um, if you have something like Wilson's disorder, that Paragard is not um, compatible with, uh, with that medical condition. I think yeah. that's the the rundown of the big ones. There's also like, there's arm implants. Um, there was, when I was in high school, there was like the depot or the depot shot. Mm. Um, and that was like, people were like, this is so cool. It's like once a year shot or something like, how great is that? No, not, not having to remember, but there were like devastating, like bone density issues with it. So I don't even know if it's on the market anymore. Like that was a really horrific negative side effect of it. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's on the market anymore, but I, yeah, we've had some friends use it. Yeah. It was like, people were super into it when I was in high school or like, I mean, I get it. I get why it was, it was touted. It was cost-effective. It was easy. It was once a year. Mm -hmm. Um, It kind of ticks all the boxes for a teenager trying to remember to take birth control, but I think it had some negative, some pretty big negative side effects. Yeah. I mean, it is still on the market. However, they do have a very large disclaimer on the depot shot, basically saying that prolonged use of this drug will result, may result in significant loss of bone density. It's not so. good, but it's, I, I think things like the, the, the depot shot. And I think there's another shot on the market more recently developed by Pfizer mm-hmm. and like the arm implant is really great for, or, or an IUD They're really great for, um, like, like if you don't have good access to, to healthcare, super, super important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we pulled some literature kind of talking about health and performance, more the performance side of things, um, with birth control. But as we mentioned, like really all we know is it's only really been looked at with oral contraceptives, which I think is like a big issue because while oral contraceptives have been kind of the standard for birth control, I think all of my friends that are on birth control have an IUD at this point. Yeah. Send me a DM if I'm wrong. (laughs) <laughs> but I think you're all on an IUD if you're on birth control. Yeah. I mean, but I guess when you look at some of the research, like one of the papers by Kirstie Elliott, say on team found that almost 70% of elite athletes were on some form of birth control. Again, they don't really clarify what kind that is. So that could be oral contraceptives. That seems like a pretty high number to not encompass some. And so, yeah, I don't think we know exactly how many people are on it, but we do know that it is relatively common in the athletic community. Um, However, if you guys remember, this wasn't even created till the 60s. So when we looked at these numbers back in the 80s, like 
there are only 8% of athletes that use the pill, which is pretty low, right? But by the 90s, so 10 years later, it was at 50%. So people adopted this pretty quickly um, without really knowing how it impacted their performance, right? So my mind immediately goes back to some records that were thrown down back then. You know, how much faster could those women have been if, if perhaps these birth controls were impacting their performance? Um, because one thing we did, we do know is that first round of birth control, the one that was kind of produced in the sixties was super high dose estrogen. And we know that that really high level of estrogen that has slowly come down over years did have pretty negative impacts on your body's ability to like store carbohydrates, um, and really, really increase fatty acid oxidation, which if you guys remember from last episode, we know that happens because estrogen has those impacts on the body. Um, and so you can imagine if you're, in, if you're supplementing with super high doses of synthetic estrogen, it would also have those kind of impacts on your system. I'm just like, yeah, I'm just trying to think of the three or four months that I was on an oral contraceptive and how I felt about myself athletically at that time point. Like I can't imagine like, yeah, I would say it did not improve my performance in a positive in a positive way. No. I think it's because one of the major side effects is like for, for many people is like weight gain. Right. And it's like, that's not to say that that weight is indicative of performance, but like, I did not feel very good in my body at that point in time. Um, mm -hmm. I was heavier than I had been or where I thought my body was happiest. Um, it felt very unnatural. So mm -hmm. that to me yeah. was not, was not, was not help was not healthy or helpful. And I, I think a lot of studies have said that, right. They have shown that there was water gain or water retention. In, in a lot of the women who went from no oral contraceptive to contraceptive. So, you know, they took a Corinne pre-birth control, except in this case, she was taking oral contraceptive and they tested her before, and then they tested her after and they found that there was an increase in water retention. And they, in some studies um, also found that there were decreases in VO2 max decreases in peak power. And so again, these studies are not super robust. We say this all with a grain of salt because we don't actually know but there are some studies that show that birth control could be disadvantageous. But again, this is all like very much speculation because one of the biggest pitfalls I see with this research is that they take day one through six of naturally occurring menstrual cycles and they take day one through six of the pill-based menstrual cycle and they compare those. And then they compare <laughs> the entire menstrual cycle. So the rest of your follicular phase ovulation and luteal phase to the 26 monophasic pill days. And that's what they're comparing. And so if they see differences sometimes and they don't see differences sometimes, like, well, of course that's going to happen because you don't know what you're comparing, right? Because the luteal versus follicular phase has such drastic differences in hormones for females. Um, and obviously someone who has a monophasic pill is having the same, same dose of hormones every day. And so I think trying to compare those two very, very different buckets of days is just completely like not the right way to go about this research, but I don't, I don't have an answer for how to go about it quite yet, but. Yeah. I think there's been some good literature that came out this past year, just about like, how do we do research with female test subjects? Like we've been doing it wrong, mm -hmm. um, by maybe not like not measuring, um, hormonal phases like correctly or accurately or, or accounting for them at all. So I think that this kind of falls into that bucket as well, in which we just don't really know as much as we should because one, there hasn't been a lot of research done. And then two, the research done has not necessarily been method methodologically as sound as it could be, or as we know it should be at this point. Does that seem fair? Mm -hmm. Seems fair. Yeah. And for some of you uh, science nerds out there, if you're watching us on YouTube, you'll see one of another favorite graphs that I like <laughs> that I posted in the 
in the document showing kind of this meta-analysis of different studies that compared natural menstruating women to oral contraceptive use. And it does show quite a skew from that central line, I will say. So towards naturally occurring menstrual cycles. Yeah. I mean, I told, I told Steven that this is my last IUD when we pull this thing, we're having kids and then he's getting the old and I'm using hand gestures, even though it's a podcast, the old snip, snip. <laughs> I think that's fair. I know that's fair to say. I'll tell <laughs> everyone about it. <laughs> um, one thing where we've got, we, we had some really good questions come in um, that we're not going to get to today, but I think the biggest thing to end maybe on birth control, unless Keely, you have anything else you want to add on performance? Nope. Okay. Um, last thing to add, um, well, we're not going to talk a lot about sex today. Um, we just want to say that while birth control is very effective for preventing pregnancy, it does not prevent from the transmission of sexually transmitted infections. Um, so that's important to consider based on what your lifestyle is like. Mm-hmm. Just throwing out some public, some public safety, public, public health information yeah. um, for y'all. I feel yeah. very... And shoot us a note if you are on oral contraceptive and you find that you feel certain things during the day, because I feel like I'm just interested um, Mm -hmm. in that because I don't think it's a super well-known space. And I know a lot of women on hormonal birth control, whether it's an IUD or oral contraceptive, feel different things, different days, and that's normal and that's okay. But yeah, talking about it might might be better. Slide into your DMs. Let us know about (laughs) about your private life. Break that 14th Amendment. Come, come tell us about your preferred choice of birth control. Um, that wasn't creepy, I hope. Um, so I think to end, because we've had you all had all of your attentions for way too long. This, uh, whenever you're listening to this, maybe in the car, maybe on a run, maybe it's the perfect length for your run. And we are so stoked that you're not going to have to try to find a new podcast to listen to after us. Um, but we're going to end with Society Slam, as we always do. And once again, it is brought to you by Aura Ring. Um, if you're interested in utilizing a wearable technology to track recovery um, or how you're accommodating training load and life stress or track your period, if you're a person who gets one, um, you can find that their link in our show notes. Keely, slam it. Um, my ring is off. I was actually going to show mine and realize that it's charging, but anyways. Um, so my slam is from a fan of the podcast who raced a marathon this last weekend in 90 plus degrees and started her period the day before. And she just wanted to give us a shout out because she said, usually she would have started the race, a mental wreck and been really impacted mentally throughout the race, but she felt super empowered because of our last two episodes where we talked about both of these things um, and that her mental game was sharper during the race because of it. And that she ended up finishing third female ninth overall. Beast. Yeah. (laughs) That day two. That's my favorite. So cool. You crushed it. (laughs) Hillary, what do you have? Yeah. So it was really fun uh, reading all of the first period stories. uh, you know, because we shared ours from the last episode and like I was encouraging people to kind of share theirs on um, on all of our social media. So that was so cool. I think everyone was really um, excited. I can't read all of them because there was a ton of comments, um, but I wanted to highlight a few. Um, Ellie Greenwood, she was like, she's she's always been an inspiration to be an amazing athlete. And so I wanted to highlight her little thing. She said on her C- CCC win, she had her period. And she said, at least she had black tights on, but her sister had to go mid-race shopping for a post-race Tampax. Or how about six-hour, her six-hour six comrades were, were on one Tampax, she said. And then she was shouted by a drug tester at the finish line before they watched her pee into a cup. And she was like, 
come on, like, give me some privacy. I got to take care of something here before I pee in this. <laughs> and then uh, the, my favorite part about all this is that she said, um, I raced well on both occasions and she raced rather ambitiously in bug, bun huggers at Comrades. So that was cool. Um, and then I'll highlight one more just because I thought it was really funny. Um, this one is from Mallory. Um, she said she played softball when she was younger and her dad was her coach. And at the beginning of practice one day uh, when she was 12 years old, she told him that she had back pain and it was really hurting. And so he made her try every single possible stretch in the world to make it feel better, but it wasn't going away. And then she got home and like talked to her mom and that night and realized she had started her period. <laughs> so I just thought that was really funny. Like the That's cute. Yeah. <laughs> like, try this stretch. I mean, I, I was like, crap, I, I, you know, pulled a hammy and it was just cramped. So that can be pretty intense. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. So my, my society slam, and this is a request to our audience. If you've made it this long and you're still listening, this is a, this is a request for you all. Um, I had a listener write in about sports bras and just like really looking for recommendations. They're struggling to find something that's supportive enough, that is breathable, that like, isn't crazy. Um, and that's, that's hard sports brothers, super, super personal, just like, I don't know, a good shoe. And, um, <laughs> everyone's got their own, their own thoughts, feelings, and recommendations. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's an important, it's an, an important piece of equipment to feel comfortable running. I think for many people, for, for, for many of us independent of, of boob size. And so my request would be, cause I feel like we're kind of uniformly kind of itty bitty titty committee on this podcast. I think I have the biggest boobs, which I'm really proud of at a B cup. Um, I'm all about compression, but for those listening, can you slide into our DMS or slide in mind D- DMS, whatever, um, with sportswear recommendations at like your cup size and all cup size. Welcome. If you have something that you really, really love, we'd love to share that information with all of you. Um, and with this listener, because I do think finding a sports bra that fits and makes you feel good, makes you feel supported is really, really critical, um, to enjoying your run. So that is my request slide into my DMS with sports bra recommendations. And one thing to add to that, because I think it is really important. And I just learned this because I just started running for Brooks. They have a bra finder on their website, which I have used. And it's amazing because you can have, it's like anything from like strap, like your cup size, like it's amazing. They have so many different kinds of bras and I was able to try out a bunch of different ones, like find my favorites, but they've got one for every size, shape, like activity. So that would be a good place to, and it's one of the first times I've actually had a purely seamless bra. So I haven't gotten chafed. Yeah. And Brooks, uh, acquired moving comfort who was yeah. a very standout bra, um, female, mm-hmm. female led bra company. Um, and this is another one thing that I wanted to highlight is that bras actually impact performance. So getting the right bra can actually help you run better. So yeah, definitely boobs. send us those. We'll, we'll talk about them next Next yeah, we'll talk pod. about next next pod. Boobs move in some fun directions when you're running, so it's important to, to make sure they're moving with you um, down the trail. So thanks for bearing with us um, through this episode, and we can't wait to see you next time or out on the trail.